Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, Howard. I like this. You, the, you like to be introduced. I like I, your sweatshirt. Thank That's you. That's an old one. You keep stuff from the 70s. No, this is actually a new one. This R- is, oh, because your son got it for you? Yeah. ASU? He got it for himself, like but it was colors. too big for him, so he gave it to me. Yeah, yeah, I like that. How come you didn't offer that up yesterday when I was cold? Maybe I was wearing it. Did you find the key? I found the key. Thank you. Hmm. And my equipment was There's, still you've here. You've made 700 keys for me. How many have I lost? Uh, 704. S- 702. Yes, exactly. Right about there. All right. Quit stalling. We have a great guest. We do. Just quit hogging the airwaves. Absolutely. So uh, I just had a pizza, just you know, and some chocolate, so it could start smelling. <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually already sh- is. I yeah. just can't believe I just did this. The one well, thing I shouldn't do is have cheese before a podcast. Uh, By the way, I woke up. You did today, obviously. Yeah, Ellen was in, just two days in a row. She was in another bedroom. Oh, that Which always bad, makes huh? me like. And it wasn't the snoring, was it? Well, I was hoping it was the snoring. <laughs> in this case, I was hoping it was the snoring because last night I had some. Uh, I was up with uh, my friend Jordan from DraftKings who was in town, and I went, I treated myself to a piece of Kobe beef. Oh. That just never ends well for me. That's all the fat. Yeah. Anyways, I inhaled it. I literally inhaled it. You don't have to chew those things. You can just you smell You literally them just yeah. suck it. Yep. It just melted in my mouth, and immediately the fireworks began. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was once getting a massage, and I did this. I had a pizza before the massage. <laughs> You are bad. And I become like a soundboard if I have cheese when touched. And uh, the woman walked out. (laughs) She walked (laughs) Just left. No comment. She's just probably holding her breath. She had to run. I don't even know if she lived. So if I keel over in here, it's because I've stayed too long. I'm just warning you and and Rob, our guest. A reveal, because Rom may go, is anybody listening on your own? I go, no, could have left for the day. <laughs> so anyways, with that introduction, and this is, this is what you get with Panic with Friends, is we have an incredible guest who knows more about growth and technology and stocks and trends and momentum and the markets and hedge funds and crossover funds. And this guy's got a 10-minute intro about uh, my gas problem. But now I'm going to act smart because I love talking about what we're going to talk about. Okay. So, Ram. Parameshwaran. Parameshwaran, correct? Yeah, I don't think any of us are doing it great, but we're doing it close. Ram. Parameshwaran. Parameshwaran. He uh, was introduced to me by uh, Jeff Richards. Did I say Jeff right? I think you did. (laughs) So, Jeff over at GGV, who's been a a guest, and I'm a big fan of Jeff, said, you've got to have Ram on the podcast. And I'm a huge fan of Altimeter, Brad Gerstner, mm-hmm. who I've not met. And obviously, uh, I'm a big fan. He's a crossover. He's a private investor, a public market investor, has a SPAC now trading. And uh, so I've only had a chance to chat with Ron once, but I'm so I'm excited to have him on the podcast. He's done it all. He's worked at Qualcomm early, to, I think 2003 to 2009, semiconductor and mobile space, and uh, has been at Altimeter as a partner for, I don't know, five, six years. We'll hear about that, learning from one of the legends. And now I own his own. 
So he's a baby altimeter. I don't even know what you call that. It's like a tiger cub. So he's been inside the beast, and now he's out taking what he learned and applying it to uh, markets in his own unique style, as I would say. So uh, let's uh, welcome him on. Let's get him on the phone. Hey, guys. How are you? Well, we'll see. I may have to step out a couple times because of my <laughs> life. <laughs> so it's a, it's a G-rated show. The, uh, how do you pronounce the name of your firm? It's Octahedron. And what does that mean? I know that just means something. I, did, I couldn't even, I couldn't spell it in Wikipedia. I couldn't even look it up. Well, it, it's literally a eight dimensional object. It's like eight sides. It, it's part of a, a family of crystals okay. and uh, it's eight sides. That's all the rest of it. It's a cheap domain. Let's put it that way. I pay $12 per month per year for the domain. Okay. So that's all it really meant. But it has nothing to do with investing or what's the connection to growth investing or technology? Um, very little, but I created a story out of it. Uh, the, it turns out that, you know, the silicon is a crystal, right? And the octahedron is a molecular structure of silicon and its derivatives. I said, we live in Silicon Valley, right? We invest in tech. The basic unit of all technology is silicon. And so it's really homage to the fact that we live in the Bay Area and the roots in Silicon Valley. And because I do so much work in China and Asia, the number eight is a lucky number in Asia. So I said, hey, what connects eight and silicon in a cheap uh, domain price? And it turns out octahedron is exactly that. And the geekiness in you, is that you were born with that, you think? I think so. Huge nerd growing up. Uh, never really played sports. I like sports, likes watching sports. But, uh, you know, when I hear friends who did this uh, 35 mile bike ride on the weekend, I was like, dude, I think I've walked 35 miles in my life. Oh, got it. So what's your killer thing? Computers or gaming or what? Yeah, you would think it's all of those. But no, I, I love reading and I watch a lot of comedy. Uh, that's the way I relax. I just read a lot. Now it's all podcasts and I to kind of like, you know, slow down. I, I watch comedy. So no, never really played games growing up because I grew up in the in 1980s in India and honestly could not afford games. So never really grew up with video games. Uh, so never really got into it, even though funny enough, we cover gaming stocks for, uh, for a living these days. Uh, no, but very much uh, into reading, into analysis, into thinking. Um, and, um, and just, uh, comedy, frankly, I, you know, love just watching interesting sitcoms. What got you to the States? So how did you come here? You know, I graduated college in 2001 in India and, you know, 2001 was a, just a difficult year for everybody, right? Now, obviously technology had burst in the U S but there were not many opportunities in India back in the day. And if you were somewhat ambitious and somewhat, you know, you, you were, you know, you really wanted to build something. Growing up middle class in India does not really set you up for success. Uh, there are very few opportunities. So I came to America, I mean, literally just to find a better life for myself. And, you know, luckily I was blessed with a reasonable brain and I was an engineer. So I packed my bags and I came out to the East Coast of America to the, uh, to Virginia Tech and got my master's in electrical engineering there. And so, uh, so that's how I came to America, literally first an immigrant, a better life for yourself, just a path that millions of people have taken before me. So I wouldn't even call it something exceptional. Um, and then I ended up in Qualcomm after that. And they recruited you from there? Is that, was that was the path? Because Qualcomm was the preeminent American cool bubble stock, but you went after the bubble. <laughs> you went after I, the went bubble. Af I went after the bubble and really funny story here. 
So Qualcomm was founded by this legendary engineer turned professor called Irvin Jacobs, right? And, and Irvin Jacobs, you know, again, and he said this proudly in times I've had a chance to meet him casually in Qualcomm. One of the legendary stories of Qualcomm's founding is Irvin Jacobs had a thesis that he wanted to bring together the collection of the smartest electrical engineers and the smartest digital signal processing engineers in under one roof in Qualcomm in San Diego. The hiring bar for Qualcomm is ridiculously high. In fact, they only go to eight schools. At mm, least they used to I only go to that. eight schools back in the day. Okay. Yeah. And it was like the who's who's electrical engineering and computer science schools in the world. Virginia Tech happened to be one of them because there was a professor called Teddy Rath. So Virginia Tech is famous for wireless engineering. And there was a professor called Teddy Rappaport, uh, who then went to U UT, uh, who, who was a famous wireless channel design engineer. And he built a lot of the initial channel models that Qualcomm used for their technology. So VT basically ended up in the same league as the MITs and the Caltechs and the Berkeleys and the UCSDs of the world because of this lab that they had on campus. Uh, and so I was one of the, uh, so they had a history of hiring people from there. They took a break in 2000 and 2001, but it turned out in 2002, when I was a first year grad student, uh, my research work with my professor, Mike Buer, literally exactly matched what they wanted a intern monkey to do at Qualcomm for a summer. They, they wanted a guy who could do a bunch of grunt work simulations. And they, I think they literally did a Google search for a few keywords and they found me because my resume said exactly that. So a couple of interviews later, they called me on campus and they said, do you want to intern in Qualcomm for the summer? And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course I do. Right. So that's how I ended up in Qualcomm. Sheer dumb luck. That is amazing. So, yeah. and so you stayed there six years. So what the, because one of my best friends, and they are smart people, one of my best friends, we never talk about tech. He understands tech in the simplest ways because he's such a geek. He was like employee, underemployee 100 at, at Qualcomm, Craig Lauer, but he worked more on the... Oh, I know Craig Lauer. Okay. So yeah. He's great. So he's a yeah. surfer and kind of retired yeah. for a long time, but he's younger than me and uh, big brain. He knows Glenn Solomon too. He went to school with Glenn, who I just had on the podcast from TGV. So it's a small Qualcomm world. You know, I'd spend half my year in San Diego, so I'm like, I see Qualcomm people everywhere. But at some level, Qualcomm's disappointing because, well, now the stock's back and as great as ever. But it seems like San Diego's always been like, why isn't there more tech there? And it's maybe Qualcomm's just such a beast. Uh, maybe nothing else has been able to like shine in the light there. So did you live in San Diego or no? Yeah, I did. And since you know San Diego well, I lived, on, uh, I lived in UTC La Jolla. So on, I think on Genesee and Nobel Street, something, you know, apartments there. So near the, the big mall. And yeah, when UTC, they just redid it. It's beautiful. It's I mean, beautiful. COVID makes it hard because you can't enjoy it, but they just finally spent some dinero and made that a, a kick-ass mall. But it'll be interesting post-COVID because that was like now where all the startups were going and in a work from home world, how, how quickly that partakes, that comes back. How quickly do you think that comes back? Uh, I digress, but how quickly do you think like something like working at a UTC area comes back or do people even in these high-tech companies, change the way they work? Yeah, I think in the high-tech companies in particular, uh, hybrid work is going to be the future. Uh, I don't think it comes back anytime soon. Now, what will come back, I think, is traditional consumer spend. There's so much pent-up demand for yeah. shopping and travel and everything else. But I think if you think about traditional work, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical that you know a full nine-to-five, full team in the office, 
five days a week is ever going to come back again. I think it's going to be very creative hybrid structures and people and talent will be made available any part of the world. And so now let's just, uh, now that we've just completely done a Howard podcast start where nothing's happened, uh, we haven't like had any organization. Let's talk about the firm, how big it is and what you're doing today. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I, Octahedron Capital, I started the firm six months ago and the firm today is doing well. We've scaled up quite nicely. Uh, We're a team of, you know, me and then three analyst colleagues of mine. Um, You know, we're running a little close to a hundred million dollars in AUM right now, scaling up quite nicely. Um, but we're still young and, uh, you know, and ambitious and we're still very much in the, in the building phase. And I expect us to be in this phase for a few years. So the firm is, is actually quite simple. And I love the Charlie Munger quote, which says, you know, investing should be simple, but it should not be easy. And, and that's a philosophy I've taken to heart. And it's also a philosophy I've learned from Altimeter, uh, which also had a very similar philosophy. Um, and, the, and the reason why we can execute against the philosophy is because of our focus. So let's start with this. What do we do? So I believe that one of the best investing tailwinds in our lifetime is investing in the internet space. Okay. And I define internet quite broadly. Uh, what I mean by that is we have the front end of the internet that happens to be the marketplaces and on-demand companies and content businesses and advertising models. And then we have the back end that generally gets broken up into two pieces. The first piece is payments because payments is the lubricant that drives the economy forward. Mm -hmm. And then what I call some parts of software. And I'm very specific about the software we cover. So I generally think of software companies as two different kinds of beasts. The first beast is big sales-oriented, enterprise sales, large contracts, top-down sales approaches, historically sold in licenses, then in SaaS, and now in other formats. And then the other spectrum, which is bottom-up, freemium, developer tools, organic kind of uh, software sales. And so when I think about internet companies, I think of these volume-based, consumption-based models sold kind of organically in a vital fashion to look and feel more like internet companies than traditional software companies. So that's what I consider internet. Um, as a firm, we are our goal is to own some of the largest value creative stocks uh, in, in the world. Uh, and we do this across the world. We do it across China and India and Latin America and the U.S. And again, the only reason we can do this is because we are quite focused. And, um, you know, generally we own between, I'd say, five to 12 stocks at any point in time. We tend to do one to three private investments every year when the IRR on a three-year basis is far exceeds that in the public markets. And then, you know, it's, it's not popular to say this, but I've been a short seller for a long time and shorts have been very hard in recent years. But when we see certain fundamental reasons to go against a trend, we also take shots on those goals. So think of it as a focused specialist firm. But again, my view in specialization is, is that a trend you want to bet against? The internet space is what, 25, 30 years old now, right? It's a utility for all customers and businesses. But, you know, Patrick, John Collison, who came on a, on a different podcast a few months ago, said this so elegantly. He said that, listen, Stripe is in the business of increasing the GDP of the internet. And it's funny, however you cut this, in whichever way you cut this, uh, we kind of believe that, you know, less than 10% of the total global GDP is today conducted on the internet. And given, you know, all these secular changes happening with cloud and the API computing environment and ubiquitous mobile devices and 3G going to 4G, going to 5G, you know, I am reasonably convinced that 
in the next, in our lifetimes, right? Next 30, 35, 40 years, we will go from that five, six, 7% penetration to 50, 60, 65%. And it's a trend I don't want to bet against. And I actually believe that this is one of the most secular trends, the most obvious trends in our lifetime. And so as a firm and as a person, I tend not to imagine the future. Uh, I think we're just better at seeing the present more clearly. And our job is to find, you know, just leading companies in the space that will just drive this change forward. So that's what we do as a firm. That's awesome. And is everybody in the Valley? Yeah. So I have a belief that everyone is in the Valley right now. I have one intern in Beijing. Um, and I have a couple of what I call um, other remote interns, but the core team sits with me in my office in San Francisco. All right. So now I have a million questions. So I am just recently, and I'm not a podcast person other than I listen to some of Patrick's stuff, just because I only listen, I have the attention span of, uh, who are we talking to here, Kanu? Nah, we have, I have the attention span of a gnat, as you can tell. The uh, curious to to nth degree, but often a thousand directions at the the most current curious things. So, you know, I've just heard about Altimeter. So I'm now down a rabbit hole and his name pops up everywhere to me. So how did you get recruited there? Like, was he famous at the time or has he always been famous or how did you end up there? No, he's not been famous, but I was, he was, he's always been inspiring and he's always been consistent with the way he, he thought about investing. So it's a funny story how I met him. So let's go back to a little bit. I was at Qualcomm for a few years. Yeah. I got bored in a big tech company. Um, I was having no impact after the first five or six years. Because the stock uh, was just in never, it was in constant it's not, it's sideways. Not, it's, it's, it's not about the stock. It turns out that in a big tech company, Eventually, unless you break through all your early, you end up in the morass of what I call mid-level management. Mm -hmm. And it's not a bad thing to be a mid-level manager. It's a great way to live your life. But great companies are run on the back of large, large swaths of mid-level management. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that's a wonderful way to live your life. It just wasn't the way for me. Number two, it was also San Diego. And, you know, San Diego is a great happens. place. In your t- nothing happens. Nothing there. happens. Yeah. Nothing happens. Which is why and I love it. it yeah. <laughs> it's great if you're, uh, you know, in your, I think in your fifties. Tuscany or plus. Retire, I call it Tuscany plus. Tuscany plus sounds about right to me, yeah. right? But there is what I call this a general lack of uh, batshit crazy ambition, right? In San Diego, because it's such a great place to live in, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so I was getting frustrated that. I wasn't having any impact. My team had grown from 300 to 3,000. Don't get me wrong. One of the most incredible and intense learning chances of my life, because as I said, Qualcomm hires some astonishing people. Like the smartest people can be found there. Like my resume gets sent there once a year just to check if they're hiring good people. and They've never responded. So they still have game. (laughs) Yeah, I think they've uh, reduced their standards a bit recently, but uh, that's what happens when you scale, right? So anyway, I was was, uh, in San Diego and my wife also worked at Qualcomm, by the way. And so she, by the way, just as an aside, my wife runs the Y Combinator Growth Fund along with her colleague, Ali Rogani. So we become a um, a kind of by mistake to investor family. Yeah, Ali Ali from from Twitter Twitter, uh, is the CEO of uh, YC's growth fund and my wife Anu co-runs the fund that with him. together. That's cool. Okay. Got right. It. So, so we, we are, uh, you know, inadvertent investors. So what happened is, you know, she was at, um, so she went to business school first. Um, and when she was in business school at Wharton, she's got the second cousin who runs this uh, wonderful tiger firm in New York called SRS. Okay. 
And, and this guy's name is Karthik Sharma. He's a wonderful person and a wonderful investor. I, I, I met him in New York in 2007 or 8. And I was amazed by what he had done. He had built a firm called SRS. He started the fun, I think, in 2004. But his career was a lot like mine. He also came here as a first-gen immigrant. He, uh, you know, he was sm- he's smarter than I am. So he ended up going to McKinsey in the late 1990s and then got recruited at Tiger Management and then was also Tiger Global's first analyst when Chase Coleman spun out of Tiger Management, spent a few years there and then built his own firm. So in many ways, he was the in. So when I met him in 2008, I still remember clearly. I was like, man, this is what I want to do. I want to build some IP for myself. And once I build IP for myself, I want to build a firm around it. And so it's so funny, even though, you know, again, um, I had no plans of building companies. When I met Karthik, he was the first guy who kind of put that, you know, little thing in my head that I should go build a company of my own someday. Anyway, fast forward, went to business school at the University of Chicago, studied a bunch of finance and tried to get a job in the business in, in, on the buy side. And as you know, getting a job on the buy side is incredibly complicated and very difficult. And here I was, right? An engineer who doesn't really know stock picking, frankly, who understands business models well, but couldn't really put together a a polished stock pitch competing against some of the smartest banking analysts and private equity analysts and hedge fund analysts in the world for a few coveted spots. And so I had a problem. Spent all this money going to business school, did not want to do consulting or whatever. Really loved the investment business because I was, by that time, I started reading about George Soros and the Tiger Management Company and Phil Fisher. And I was really inspired by, wow, this idea of, you know, pitting your wits against the best in the world and trying to come up with insights was just so inspiring to me. So anyway, but nobody wanted to give me a job, least of all because I didn't have the background. I mean, they're like engineer, product manager, wants to be a mutual fund analyst. Who cares? Screw him. So I had the distinction of getting a plan of 400 jobs and getting zero offers, right? And it was, <laughs> it was a lesson in persistence in getting your ass kicked. But never mind. What really happened was I had a couple of, I had a big insight at, in, in business school. I realized that, man, if I could not, um, you know, if I could not compete on a more broader playing field, I've got to become quite narrow and focused. And I said, well, let me become a technology analyst. Let me just focus on technology and do nothing else. And it was hilarious that many people who were proposed technology analysts had never worked in tech before. So I knew I had a few insights that were better than them. Anyway, long story short, I graduated business school and I ended up at this uh, sell site firm in New York called Sanford Bernstein. And I, I was, again, one of the rules I have in life, and I learned this from a mentor, is it doesn't really matter what you do, but seek out the most amazing people you can find. And so I was fortunate in 2011 I met this absolutely wonderful person called Carlos Kirchner. And Carlos uh, was a McKinsey partner. Um, and also, I think he was at Vodafone for a while. And, you know, he was also a first-gen immigrant from Brazil and just a brilliant man. Got his PhD in math or whatever. And he was going to build the internet team at Bernstein. And I was able to somehow fake my way in, you know, into convincing him to hire me as his number two. And the reason I had the insight that I wanted to do internet it's in 2011 in Chicago, if you remember, Groupon was a huge deal, right? Remember Groupon? Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So Groupon, I think, was the fastest company to get to a billion dollars in sales. There was some obnoxious statistic about how fast Groupon grew. But the guy who ran Groupon was a seed investor, I think, was a gentleman called Eric Lovkowski. 
And Eric well, Wyskowski. Yeah, he's done a million deals in Chicago. That guy's been doing stuff forever, 90s, in the 90s. Right. And talk about just owning a market. And he finally hit pay dirt with Groupon. But he taught a class at the University of Chicago's business school called Building Internet Companies. And it was one of the most transformative classes for me because he taught me all about growth hiring, growth scaling, how to think about companies. And I said, listen, if I want to invest in the, in the, you know, in, a, in the stock market, which I really wanted to do, I want to cover internet stocks. Now, little did I know at the time that Facebook and Google would be such impactful big businesses. But I basically told Carlos that, listen, I love the internet space. I absolutely want to work with you. And somehow he believed me and gave me a chance. So one thing you'll see about my life is lots of people have taken bets on me when I really did not deserve it. So Carlos was, I would say, the first guy to take a bet on me. Um, so I joined Carlos. And this is coming out of the great financial crisis. Bernstein as a firm covers very few stocks and does it really well. And so Bernstein in many ways kind of like reinforced my thesis that focus and doing a few things is actually more valuable than doing a hundred things. So I joined Bernstein and we initiated coverage on Facebook and Google and Amazon and Netflix and eBay and Yahoo. I mean, think about some of the best companies in the world in 2011 when they were not fully kind of recognized. Now, the beauty of Carlos's work and my work is because we covered only four or five stocks, we had the capacity and the time to really become excellent at that. And we kind of did what I call very distinctive work. And I'm really proud to say that we probably made billions for our clients from our insights. So what are the three big things we did? Well, number one, we were the only firm to short Facebook at the IPO. So talk about having the balls to do that, right? Wow. At Bernstein, put the big sell rating on Facebook at the IPO. Now, we were right for a short term and then very wrong for a long time. But again, it the insight was that Facebook was going to find it very hard to make that transition in a short enough period to mobile ads. And by the way, I've been a face Facebook has been a big investment for me for years after that. But we had the... Uh, what I call the the uh, propensity to do that. And that was impressive how Carlos made me think kind of on an independent basis. We also, and again, the other big piece of work that I'm particularly proud of, we were the, I think we, I want to say based on client feedback, that we were the first Wall Street firm to write probably the seminal piece of work on the cloud. And so there's a black book, which Bernstein publishes, where we basically mathematically proved that hiring inside a 5% margin Amazon business there was a 30% plus margin AWS business. And it, there's literally a black book that makes rounds. And that insight alone, I think, made, has made so much money for clients. And I'm just, you know, personally proud of that. And anyway, the point is, spent two years there, had a wonderful time with Carlos. He honestly taught me everything he knew. He's still very close to me. He's actually on my board of advisors. And he's right now crushing it. He's the CFO of the ads business at Google. And so just a wonderful human being and... Uh, one of the smartest people I know in the world. I spent two years with him, got trained well, and I really wanted to go to the buy side. You know, I said, the sell side thing is good. I've learned a lot, but it's time to put my money where my mouth is. But here's the challenge again. In New York, in what I call elite hedge fund world, nobody wants to hire a sell side analyst, unfortunately. And there's this weird caste system when it comes to like hiring. Uh, and I just wanted to work in some of the best funds in the world. So I'm not saying I was particularly any good, but I really had, like my attitude is work with great people in great firms. And so um, I went down the path again. And, and luckily, very luckily, a guy called me one day. It was a new fund called Falcon Edge. It was one of the biggest launches of 2012 or 13. And the CIO, a guy called Navroz, called me. And he wanted my Google model. 
And we struck a friendship. And before I knew it, Google became a day one portfolio position for them when they launched. And I became their trusted analyst on the sell side. And so I knew the guy for a couple of years. And when I was ready to move and find a job, I pitched him on coming and working for him. And he was hemming and hawing or whatever. But ultimately, you know, they, they were, I was very lucky that Rick Gerson, the guy who started uh, Falcon Edge and, and Navrose, kind of took a bet on me and said, fine, come over and become a technology analyst. Got it. So that's how it started. So when did Alterminder start? No, this was actually Falcon Edge Falcon in Edge. 2013. Got so it. now this is how I met Brad. Got so it. in 2013, I was the analyst on, on Booking.com. And we had a common friend called Alexander Tamas, who was at DSC at the time, now runs a firm called VY Capital. And Alexander connected me with Brad. So I go to Brad uh, and I, have, I meet him for breakfast, I remember. He was talking at the Focus Right conference. Um, this is in Florida. And, um, you know, it felt like I was meeting a philosophical elder brother. Hmm. Like the guy had built a firm absolutely scrappy. I think the firm started with three or four million dollars in the bank day one. He was in this little tiny cold office in Boston. Mm -hmm. And I just loved the story of how he was so scrappy. <laughs> he was building something. I was like, man, I want to be this guy when I grow up. Right? right. So we had this great conversation, real heart to heart. And this is what happened. He gave me a job on the spot. Wow. And, and I told him, no, I'm not going to join you because I was like, dude, I'm this, I'm in this multi-billion dollar hedge fund in New York. I just joined them. I, I'm not going to move to California for you. He was going to California at the time. And so let's be friends. So we remained friends for a couple of years. Got it. And then what happened is in 2014. And he has great hair. I mean, for an older guy, he has good hair. It was immediately <laughs> like, is he coloring it, you think, or is that real? Um, he's just naturally handsome. Okay. Uh, let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so so a lot, a, lot, a lot like you, Hubbard. Like you guys are the same. Yeah. So, well, that, that's now you're lying. But I, I saw, so, just I saw him for the first time on CNBC. And I'm like, well, he's a handsome guy too, the prick. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the story then is my wife, who's smarter than I am, she ended up uh, moving to California in 2014. And in 2014, she got a job at Andreessen Horowitz. And so she was also pregnant with her first child. And there was no way in hell I was going to leave my six-month pregnant wife in California while I was in New York alone. And so I came over to California for Falcon Edge, and I actually opened their office here for a few months. And you know, after a few months, I just got bored working alone as a one-man shop. This is pre-Zoom. And I called Brad and I said, Brad, remember you wanted to hire me two years ago? And do you still think you have that job for me? Now, luckily for me, he did not hire anybody. So it's like, all right, come join me. And that's how I joined Altimeter in 2015. Wow. And so that's the story of how I met Brad. Well, I'm glad I asked. So it is an important Twists moment and in your Twists life. and turns. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, a lot of luck happens. But one of the lessons I learned so he's from him no, is- So he started from the bottom- I got to get his story one day. I'm going to have mom, but I got to hound him to get him. You on. Should so totally it's not an overnight. Like, I mean, he started like when I heard him on Patrick, I'm like, wow, that's how I think. When I heard him speak, I'm like, that's how I look at the world. I didn't know there was another person who looked at it the same way. He has a weird, unique, but very common sense look at how to invest. That's right. I mean, the, the, the two big philosophers, I, I joined him five years ago and now, over the last five years, I became one of the three leaders of the firm, mm -hmm. and I covered global internet, global payments, uh, public and private. And, you know, I want to say that I played a small role in helping him build out the fund over the last five years. How big are they now? Oh, they must be, I, I don't have the latest AUM stats, but uh, I'm sure they are easily not the $5 billion. 
It's one fund, but now he's got the SPAC too. I just saw. I bought a few shares. No, the way it's, 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 a, it's a it's a pretty normal strategy of most investment firms. You start the hedge fund, and then if you have the capacity, the talent in, internal, and the deal flow, and the interest to invest in private companies, you typically build a growth fund around your flagship fund. Right, so we had the hedge fund, and then we we built multiple growth funds during the time I was there, and now I think they are on growth fund number five or six. Got it. And so now let's talk. So you leave right as COVID starting. Yeah. So I was leaving was a long time for me coming. I I always dreamt about building a firm, and I was so lucky that Brad gave me the chance to almost do a dress rehearsal for building the firm. You know, at Altimeda, right? Because you know, two things happened. Number one. I became a portfolio manager and that gave me a lot of confidence that I could go out to the world and I wouldn't really embarrass myself and disappoint my investors. And number two is I was able to build a product market fit for myself that was exceedingly rare and I thought was quite sustainable. And that product market fit, uh, again, it was just a function of being right place, right time, at the right time Brad was scaling. Because when, we, when I started, I'm going to say that we did not have too many resources to throw behind our private investment strategy. And so Brad's entire point was, listen, I've hired smart people. You guys go figure it out. And here are the guardrails and you execute against it. And so I was lucky to be one of the few people, frankly, I think around the world, at least in my space, to have had a chance to do public equities, deploy hundreds of millions of dollars on a global basis, US, China, and then do the same thing in the private markets globally as well, across US, China, India, and Latin America. And so it was just a function. Again, right now, there are big firms that have hedge funds and growth funds and long-only funds. But if you're an analyst joining a big fund today, you will get, you will almost guaranteed get pigeonholed to one or the other strategy, right? Because you need people to work on specific products. In my case, because we joined early, I would argue that two or three of us at Altimeter had a real chance to kind of build out that muscle to do publics and privates kind of seamlessly uh, over the last five years. And so right now, I think Altimeter, I mean, the SPACs are just different. The SPACs are just a different way of going public. And sure. did I, to be clear, I've only invested in one SPAC in my life. And that has to be Brad's SPAC because I, I trust the guy to go and find somebody, a firm or a business that I would like to hold alongside him Correct. for the long term. Yep. So is this a way to go public? So I think that firm is very much flagship fund that has the same characteristics that we do. In fact, I learned a lot from him. Um, you know, when I was there, the firm covered three general sectors. They covered software and did really well in that. The travel did really well in that and covered internet and payments and did really well in that. And there were three people who ran each part of the business or were responsible for investments in those sites. And then of course we had the growth funds where, you know, if we find something incredible, we'd put it in the growth fund as well. Um, and so, and so that was the fun. And I spent the five years there kind of building that up. And is Octahedron a crossover fund itself or is it hundred percent liquid public? Yes. So Octahedron is what I call a native crossover fund. So think about the cloud, right? Would you rather invest in a native cloud architecture company or would you rather invest in a piece of software that is becoming retrofitted for the cloud? My answer is obviously you want to invest in a cloud native huh. business because then you've got all the elasticity and flexibility of using different kinds of clouds. So most firms are actually what I call they had a business model and we retrofitted it to do different other forms of investing. Octahedron, the way of design it is to be crossover from day one, right? And the reason I say this is at the end, our job is relatively simple, Howard, compared to what entrepreneurs do. Our job is to find great managers, mm -hmm. great business models, and find the best risk reward for our incremental dollar. 
This is not about adding more ideas. It's about finding at a point in time, what's the best risk reward across public and private companies. Huh. And so we think of ourselves very much as a native crossover fund. We find companies three to four years before they go public. We are looking for a very high IRR, typically 1,000, 1,500 bips on top of what we get in the public markets. And then decide and see, okay, is there a reason to own a private company over the public company? And we have, and luckily our LP base is such that it's patient long-term so, capital. So they don't care about liquidity. Oh, so, so it's not like quarterly redemption. So how do you, no. so at the beginning you structured it to say, how, cause I'm fascinated by this. If I was going to uh, sail off in the sunset with in my version of permanent capital, it would be what I'm learning from you and listening to Brad is some kind of native crossover that allows me the flexibility. Because I basically had a crossover fund in 2005 and it wasn't fair to my LPs who, you know, I, I invest, started investing in private companies just because I thought that was a better idea and it worked. But then it created a nightmare, you know, because how do you value this stuff? Yeah. So it's a good, it's a really good question. So first of all, I see a lot of versions of funds open where they do early stage companies and public companies. Well, that's what I did. Yeah. It was a disaster. Yeah. I think it's really hard. Yeah. No, I think there are new funds that are being created that look at deal flow and they basically say, fine, I'll put the series B company. I have, I, I know funds that have seed assets sitting alongside public assets. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work because you create just this Ill illiquidity issue, right? Yeah. I have a very simple, different view. Number one, on a, on a tactical basis, I tend to hold companies for three years at least. And why is it? Because, well, very selfishly, as a general partner, otherwise I get hit by three-year capital gains taxes. Simple. So, and all my investors are mostly are California-based or Americans, and none of us love to pay high short-term capital gains taxes. Mm -hmm. So, generally speaking, we love to hold our assets or at least have economic exposure to them for at least three years. So number one, I think the hard part about a, and this is why crossover is so hard to execute. Yeah. People, people think it's a no brainer idea. I said, guys get into the trenches and then it's a, it's really hard. And that's why it takes experience to do it. Right. And that's why I think, I think that's why we have sustainable competitive advantage. But if you ignore us for a second, we look for companies that are three to four years to going public. Right. And once they go, once they go there, we we treat it like any other public company we own. So it's not like we have ten or twenty different ideas. It's not a venture fund. If a spot is being taken in our ten to fifteen stock portfolio, the hard part is if you give it to a private company, well, it's gone. There's no spots for other companies on the public side for it, and that's number one. So you got the bar is incredibly high. Mm. But the beauty about this is once you get in and once you believe that there's a three-year path, a four-year path to being public, then I think what happens is our business model is based on the premise that we are not spray and pray. My team does not, it's not an idea of the week or an idea of the moment shop, right? Like the ultimate strategy was do a few things and do it incredibly well. It's the same philosophy here. We do a few things and we want to be top decile or top five percentile of the world in the names we come right? There'll be lots of stuff that we don't do. Like I don't understand electric vehicles just yet. So we don't cover it. And so we see the market going by, we're not chasing it. Like we're not going to add Tesla stock because, you know, it seems to be a good momentum company. We just don't do that. But the advantage of doing it in the private market is because the CEOs love working with us. And why do they love working with us? Because we work with them like an external trustworthy source of their finance team. We built the model alongside them. We show them the model every quarter. In fact, because we cover stocks and there are public equivalents, we are typically the source of intelligence for these companies. 
So there was a company I invested in, gosh, four or five years ago on behalf of Altimeter. I remember every quarter I would go into the management team and literally 25 minutes of what did we learn this quarter from your public market competition? It's the best half an hour a management team spends with us. And so as we bring knowledge to them about the public markets, we then try to handhold them or help them think through what would a public company narrative look like when they eventually go out in two or three years. And it's funny because so many smart board members and so many smart CEOs, they don't realize that, at least in the Valley, most of them are kind of coddled, right? Generally, VCs, you know, there are good VCs, but generally all VCs do not try to give a bunch of bad news and don't try to rock the boat too much, especially when you have a winner on your hands. The reality is, though, when you go to the public markets, everyone's trying to get you and they're trying to see how you slip up. And you're going from a very, I would say, cocooned atmosphere in the private markets to a bit of a dog-eat-dog kind of like shark tank in the public markets. And I think it is valuable for CEOs to understand or at least have a game plan and kind of a path. And if it comes from a trusted entity like us, where we have hopefully engendered integrity and trust for a long time, I think it means a lot, right? And so... We, once we get into a private investment, it's a lot of work for us. In fact, it's much more work doing a private investment for us than a public investment because we get into the team well. We do a lot of work alongside them. We try to help them go into the public markets. We even go help them look, find great IR people, right? We walk through narrative. And this is what we're doing right now for certain other companies. We're helping them with pricing. Like, because the biggest question everybody has is, man, what should I price the stock at? If we price it, this is going to get pop. It's going to be a big pop. And there's arguments around that back and forth. And I say, listen, I don't know what's going to happen to your stock. And, you know, you guys do you based on your SPAC or DL or whatever you're doing. But as a public market investor who's done this space for, gosh, close to a decade and who's got a really good track record and have a high bar for performance, these are the different bands of prices in which I want to buy you in the public markets. And these are the reasons why I'm not going to pay up. I don't care if the market prices you at 75 times revenue or whatever crazy valuation. This is what I am willing to pay for it. And this is something that you might want to you know, keep in mind when you go out and price yourself in the public market. Yep. That value add, I think, is, uh, is really is really invaluable, I think, for many companies. And for us, I think the value add is we get to know the companies better than most when they go public. I imagine, think about whether it's a SPAC or a public company or, or a traditional IPO, the dating time is very limited. It may be between three weeks and three months. It's actually not very much. How do you get to know a company really well in three months? I, I think it's hard. I think for us, we're just trying to extend our compounding window by working with these teams for maybe a couple of years. And maybe on the margin, it makes us just a little smarter than everybody else. But those incremental changes is what, it, is what I think gets us from a top 20 percentile kind of like business model and performance to top decile, which is what we you know, aim to get to. That's how we do our business. And it's all institutions, I imagine, correct? No. So we have, so it's not institutions just yet. So the way I raise, so it's funny you said this. I have actually not gone to raise capital yet. Um, the capital we have today comes from, I would argue some of the uh, very grateful, incredibly grateful, some of the most um, well-known venture capitalists, tech entrepreneurs, tech CEOs, um, and you know a handful of hedge fund managers, including Brad, invested in us. Got so it. uh, it's very much what I call a homespun industry and business for now. But my thesis is I, 
you know, I left Altimeter on December 31st last year, took a quick break, and I launched the fund literally in two and a half months on April 1st. And my philosophy is there's no perfect time to do anything. But when you're ready, you have the moxie and just go. Again, I learned this from Brad. And his point was, do just go. Like there's never a perfect time. You'll all, you know, you might as well iron out the king sooner versus later. Just go and build as long as you're cash flow positive, which is what we are. I was okay with doing that. Uh, but now, you know, now that you asked, we're raising, we're going, to, we're going to start our official fundraising process on January 1st. And what's the lockup then? Three years? Yeah. So for our, in, for our founders, investors, it is a three-year lockup. And then they can take money out every quarter. And if we have invested your capital in a private company, then we cannot, you cannot redeem that capital, obviously. Got it. Okay. So it's just structure. I'll have to have you back and, or I'm just going to sidebar you and talk about this because it's a fascinating subject. And I think it's, I think it's the beginning of a new trend as public and private kind of mingle now and the valuations on the public but it, but, are now... But, but, but it, go ahead, sorry. But the funny part is, remember, the, the, the thing is, it's not about the structure. The structure is not the complicated part. It's actually getting the damn job done of having the, the flexibility... To, so this is the problem, right? This is the this is this is this is why I think we have enduring value in octahedron. So the public markets are really fucking hard, really hard, right? And you may be lucky to have long-term investors, but in the first years, in the few years, you better put up performance, else you are in deep shit. Like it's just a fact of life, right? It's a very competitive market. Now the public markets means you've got to do great work on models, analysis understanding probabilities, understanding sentiment, understanding risk and reward. Now, it can be done, but I would argue there are very few great public market investors in the world. And one of the ways we kind of try to get great is because we focus, right? Like if you had to do aerospace and industrials and chemicals and internet, how can you know anything about anything? Like I couldn't figure it out. So the attitude at Altimeter is focus, focus, focus. That's the one thing that drives us. And a book that Brad gave to me years ago, which really influenced me, was this book on essentialism, which is the, the disciplined pursuit of doing less. So that's number one. But that's the public side of the business. Now you've got to literally do a U-turn, a 180-degree turn on the private side. The private side, you've got to have a little more empathy. You've got to be, you've got to believe in the vision. You've got to understand the numbers. And the numbers usually don't look good. They look pretty crap, by the way, when they are three, four years before the public markets, right? You used to be a, a, a private investor for a violin. I know you've had these near-death experiences in many companies, but the companies don't look great. So how does a person change his mind to go the other way? And so that's the hard part. But my belief is I train, I mean, at least at Altimeter, we were trained and I was trained to do exactly that. And so I actually think that skill can be taught. And that's why what I tend to do in hiring my people, I hire very young, naive people, hmm. right? Who have not done this for a while, who can be trained because it's a, it's a skill set that can be trained and taught. Uh, and so the hard part is not the structure, Howard. The hard part is doing it excellently on both the public side to get top to sell returns and also doing it in an excellent fashion on the private side and both sides are competitive. And uh, I want to leave, I mean, I got so many questions, but I want to leave with one idea. So I'm big in this fashion meets technology. I call it fashology. And I found out that you like Farfetch as much as I like Farfetch. It's doubled recently. Stock's trading over 50. What is it about Farfetch that you like? Um, Farfetch is the replacement for global Main Street. Sorry, global High Street. So think about a world over the next 10 to 15 years. I don't know what happens with COVID, non-COVID, things get better. But the reality is that the entire high street fashion industry is in disarray right now. Um, 
on the one hand, for the next one to two years, you may actually not have traveled back in size and scale. And number two is these companies are very old and stodgy. Farfetch has transformed that entire business and COVID has been this huge accelerant to their business. So number one, we, me and you, I think both agree that the big malls and the big luxury malls in America are in a bit of trouble right now, whether it's Saks Fifth Avenue or Barney's that went bankrupt or even Bloomingdale's and Macy's. Where does Gucci, so, and all these brands put these little stores in stores. Well, if those, those malls go away, they have to find the equivalent online business and that happens to be Farfetch. That's number one. Number two, Farfetch started as a marketplace of aggregating fashion from all the long tail boutiques. And so that business is still kicking ass, right? Kicking then ass. What Farf- yeah. Yes, totally, right? It's, it grew 71% last quarter and I'm pretty confident they're going to accelerate all through next year, okay? Number three, Farfetch bought this company called the New Gods Group, right? The New Gods Group is a studio in Milan which basically incubated and scaled uh, Off-White, Virgil Abloh's Off-White. And listen, I don't buy any fashion, but I read the trends and streetwear is the hottest part of fashion in the world. So this company has the largest number of luxury buyers, then the largest number of suppliers, the most number of brands, and then they're incubating their own brands. And then to add icing to the cake, these guys also run the technology websites of companies like Harrods. This reminds me of Amazon for that part of the business. Mm-hmm. Largest supplies, largest demand, and technology platform at scale. And now what has happened is, very recently, the reason why the stock did so well is they took the bankruptcy risk or running out of capital risk off the table by getting a big cash infusion from Alibaba and Richemont to do Farfetch China. And in our work, I think Farfetch China is going to be bigger than the rest of Farfetch. Right. And it's fully owned by Farfetch. So. It's one of the best places in the world to get access to China via a European company in one of the best, and the company is one of the best unit economics in the world, which has a chance to aggregate the entire multi-hundred billion dollar luxury industry. So that's why we own Farfetch and it's the second largest position. Yeah, and in March, I was like $2 billion company. It's quickly uh, like... Yeah, so we were lucky to buy a big position at nine bucks a share. Wow. I came in at 27, but I'm going to hold it a while. It feels like the right trend, right time, the right marketplace, the right partners, which leads me to the other idea, which is, not, uh, you know, it's not like a non-common idea, but Alibaba, which I recently started owning in the 200s and 250s. China's playing the game where they want to be the biggest. So why wouldn't you bet on them being a multi-trillion dollar company? Yeah, Alibaba is a proxy for China. So if you want to invest in China, uh, you cannot ignore Alibaba. And the, the stock actually has, you know, I think I sent you the email as well yesterday, but, um, you know, the stock took a bit of a pounding over the last few weeks uh, because of a, effectively two Sigma events that happened very quickly. And the first one was the Ant Financial IPO got pulled for a bunch of reasons, but I don't think those reasons are either sinister or have real lasting impact on Alibaba. And second, before the 11-11 shopping festival, Alibaba and other internet companies in China uh, became the purview of the anti-monopoly rule in the Chinese government, which basically said, guys, if you have more than 50% of clicks or 50% of songs downloaded or 50% of instant messages, then you are effectively a monopoly, even though your revenues are much smaller as a proportion. And so, you know, kind of a one-two sucker punch in Alibaba stock over the last few weeks. Um, but no, you know, we did the work on this and we re-underwrote our work and 
uh, you know, no surprises, Alibaba is our largest position right now. And the story is very simple, right? You've got a core business that is, I would argue, slightly reducing in relevance because you've got these other incredible assets like, you know, Pindodo, which was one of my large investments at Altimeter, um, which is taking kind of relevance at the top of the funnel. But you have a core business growing, I think, comfortably revenues north of 15 to 20% for as far as the eye can see for the next, I'd say, five to seven years, right? Pretty confident of greater than, you know, 18 and a half percent growth for a long time. Then you have a, the largest cloud business in China doing $9 billion of annualized revenue, growing 69%, getting to cash flow profit or EBITDA profitability in the first quarter. And so think about, I think of Alibaba today, a lot like Amazon at $400 a share, right? At $400 a share, again, this all comes back to my history of, you know, working with Amazon and publishing that cloud report in 2013 that showed this huge cloud business sitting inside Amazon. And as the same, I feel like we have the same thing in Alibaba, but at an even bigger scale, right? I did the math yesterday with my team and we took the enterprise value of Alibaba, subtracted the cloud business, subtracted a couple of other things. And we're buying the core business for, I got to tell you, you're going to be shocked, less than eight times EBITDA in 2023, less than eight times. And you tell me a stock that trades that today. Yeah, and I, I say too big to cheat. They don't even need to cheat. All right, so I could talk forever about this. Fetch, Baba, obviously you're not scared of China. I mean, China, you know, there's all this, who's the right president for this? China's just so big. I mean, we just got to deal with it no matter what. And you're just simple internet trend thought. So, we'll, you know, now that I have some history, we can have you back. But uh, what's the easiest way to follow you? I think it's Twitter or like what's the easiest way I think, for people I, to find I think, you? I think Twitter is the best way. I, I don't comment very much with opinion, but I do publish some stuff once in a while. Um, we have, so it's my Twitter handle is underscore R-A-M underscore underscore Ram underscore. And uh, we also have, you know, we publish every quarter a deck called What We Learned This Quarter. So if you go over to Octahedron Capital slash research, you'll be able to download the decks. Fantastic. Glad you uh, got yourself started on your own. I've, I'm just learning a ton here through, you know, my friends' networks. So uh, learned a lot about uh, crossover here. So so hopefully we can get you back. I know you're busy. I uh, appreciate your time and congrats on Octahedron. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Super grateful for you having me. Thank you so much, Howard. I love your podcast. And again, kudos to Jeff for introducing us. Okay. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. We're just not working hard enough. Why not? I mean, look what he's getting done. He's doing it all for us. Yeah, good point. That is a good point. And that's why I say Twitter and stock tweets, follow smart people. Yep. Don't yep. have to reinvent the wheel. Guys, just laying cupcakes on the road for you to eat. <laughs> Granted, I didn't know he owned Farfetch, but you know, I was on that. I mean, oh, yeah. he, he was buying it at nine. I wouldn't have bought it at nine because the world looked different to me. But I mean, it's such a, an obvious, simple idea. But it's fun having smart people. They don't work inside Goldman or whatever. And they, they do their work. And it's free. Right. Anyways. All right. It's Panic with Friends. I uh, do this twice a week with uh, investors, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, traders, trying to spot trends. We know the biggest trend. The internet, for Christ's sake. And, uh, and not panic. And trying to inspire people here. So hopefully everybody learns something twice a week. You can go to Apple, Spotify, Google, smash the subscribe button, tell your friends. You don't have to listen to everything, but uh, I think there's enough out there twice a week to uh, help you make a few shekels out there. Thanks, Canute, for putting this together. Thanks, Doc Twits, for uh, hosting and distributing it. And we'll see everybody soon.